I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. It's uh, great to be here. I hope you don't mind, but I wanted to have you give our listeners a few more negotiating tips today, mainly because it's such a part of putting a deal together. That's fine, just fire away. A few weeks ago, you talked about how to decide where to pitch your initial offer, and I was wondering if we could explore that a little further. Look, where you pitch your first proposal or your initial offer is somewhat crucial, and I think we may have discussed earlier about how to decide roughly where it ought be and that comes down to an understanding of what the realistic price for the property is and therefore if the owner is 20% above that you should be about 20% below that. They're just broad figures but whatever that lower figure is and there may be reasons why it is not an exact bracketing of the gap between or that the final figure is is bracketed by the two extremes. What I tend to believe believe you, you should go forward at, and this comes to a large degree from the experience of having done it a number of times before, is you need to come up with what I call the lowest believable figure. Now, You see, every time you start a negotiation, you need to overstate your expectations. You can't just pick a a random figure and be unrealistic. And that's why, as I said, it needs to be the lowest believable figure, which may or may not be, in the example I used, 20%. It may be only 15%. It may be actually 25% if it is still believable. I'll come back to how you catch that in a moment. But, you see, at this early stage, you know very little about the other side and their their, their aspirations, expectations and so forth. You, you, as I suggest, should have done a bit of homework, either through the selling agent or if you're dealing direct in, in casual pre-negotiation conversations to try and gauge some of the motivations that the vendor may have. Now, any assumptions that you've gained or created about their expectations may actually be way off. And in fact, they, despite their asking price, may well be prepared to accept a far lesser figure than you first thought. It may actually be below the figure that you feel is a realistic place that you should end up. And there are reasons for that. I mean, some vendors just ask the world and are very quick to capitulate. And it may well be that from the time they set the purchase price has been, sorry, the asking price, there has been an actual change of circumstances. and they are suddenly far more motivated than initially was conveyed to the agent when 
he or she listed the property. So given the fact that you have no real history with the other side, you end up coming across as far more accommodating, especially if you are able to make concessions on your price or some of the terms. And when I say your lowest believable figure, it's not just to do with the price. It might be to do with the the settlement terms. It could be with the amount of deposit. We've discussed all that before about that any proposal would not just be focused on price. It should have at least one other, hopefully three or four other components that go up to make the initial proposal. So therefore, in each one of those, you have to come up with a believable level for that particular component of the purchase proposal that you're making. Now, and you see, it helps to lower the perception of the property's value in the in the vendor's mind if if there is a, a reasonable but believable gap between what he's seeking or she's seeking and what you actually offer. And you see, if, as I said at the beginning, if, if you do intend to, because you feel the vendor's being unrealistic themselves, if you want to offer a figure that is much less than that, than the believable, lowest believable figure, you need to convey to the selling agent that there may be a little, a bit of movement in your figure. So yes, you get the message across that that's where you're starting, but you indicate that there, there is a bit of movement and a bit of flexibility. Otherwise, you could unintentionally create a deadlock in the negotiations where the vendor simply says, look, I'm not prepared to talk with this person. They're totally unrealistic. So you can go below the believable, but you must then offer some in, in, encouragement that you're prepared to move in your position. You see, sometimes, as I said, the other side may be ready to accept a price a lot closer to your initial proposal than you first thought. So there is nothing gained by being too accommodating in that initial proposal. And even if they don't, you're able to create the climate where in the end, because of the concessions you might make, that the other party, the vendor, feels that overall they've actually had a big win out. Conversely, if you, like some people, want to conclude a negotiation quickly, and you propose pretty much your best price up front, it means you leave yourself with little room to trade. The vendor gets overconfident. When there's little more that comes from your side, they don't feel that they've won at all. And that's the feeling you've got to leave them with, that even if you feel you've won out of the deal, you've got to convey the perception and leave the vendor with the feeling that that he or she has actually won out of this deal and therefore it's important for you to ask for more than you expect to achieve and you you do that by offering less than the vendor is obviously expecting to achieve out of this uh, transaction. So once you complete this 
back-and-forth process to reach agreement, presumably you then document the deal straight away? Yes, of course you're going to document the deal once it's done because it's important that you never proceed on a, a handshake or a verbal agreement and that might be simply an email confirming it or handwritten notes even where you each sign it and take a copy and keep it for a record so that you can compare the final contract with what you believe has been agreed already. But sometimes you don't do it immediately. You see, initially I I recommend you you have your, your first proposal in writing so that you frame the components and effectively set the agenda for the negotiation. And it may be, let's say, in the due diligence, you've asked for 21 business days, and as we know, that's effectively 30 days with weekends. And they come back and say, look, no, only seven, and very firm, the agencies will only give you seven days. Now, sometimes it's better not to pursue that and let it rest and just negotiate on the other two or three items, you know, the price, the settlement and the amount of the deposit. And once you reach agreement on those three to a point where you're happy and you shake hands on it effectively without documenting it, you might say, look, I know you were firm on that seven days. I'm sorry. For me to proceed on this, The only way I can do it is if you stretch that to 10 business days. 10 business days is actually two weeks when you take into account the weekends. But when he or she, being the vendor, feels that they have a deal and it's been, it hasn't just happened overnight. It might have taken two or three days, even a week. could be longer, going backwards and forwards until everything has been nutted out. At that point... The extra four business days, with everything else agreed, is probably not that important because you've shown genuineness. They felt they had a deal. It's a bit like buying, you know, buying a good suit. You might spend two thousand, three thousand on a suit, whatever it is, to have it tailored at one of those. And and you simply at the very end you say to them, and you're just about to make the commitment, you say, look, and you will throw in a couple of shirts as well with that. Now, having measured you up, spent all the time, they think they've got the deal and they're ready to go, they're not about to balk on a shirt or two in a $3,000 deal. It's neither here nor there to them. I mean, the shirts effectively only cost them um, $30 or $40 each. They might, might sell them for $80 to $120. But in the whole scheme of things, to cement the deal with you, a couple of shirts is not going to break it. So in the same way, once you've done the major part of the negotiating, to just return to one item that in your mind is still unresolved, even though they thought it was, that little bit of extra four days is not going to be here or there. For you, it's it's valuable because although with my clients... We can do it in seven business days quite easily. The average person who may not have the relationship I do with the consulting team might need that extra time 
from 10 to 14 business days or whatever it is. So just think about it. And there are some things that are better left until the very end before you bring them in. Otherwise, if you try and nail it down at the beginning, you'll end up paying for it in the price. Tell me, how do you handle those people who consider themselves superior to you and come across as as condescending during a negotiation? What we're talking about here is expertise as being a component of personal power. And sometimes it's abused, but it's useful, if we just backtrack a minute, for you to create or project yourself as an expert. And that doesn't mean in, in, a, in the way you're talking about in the question of lording it over other people. Um, I mean, but basically what you need to do is to establish your own background and credentials in a subtle way up front. And, you know, it's fair to say as the world becomes more complicated, more and more people, sorry, more and more of the power shifts to the experts, although many of them haven't realised that yet. I mean, your question is talking about the people that abuse that. But, you see, once you master a certain skill, make sure that you maintain and improve that skill over time. And these days, many people, as your question alludes to, will excessively use expert power. And when they speak, they regularly use their in-house jargon to make themselves appear far superior. So what you need to, to do is to quietly disarm them. And what I tend to use is a very simple formula, which when you're talking to experts is irreverence, plus innocence. And so it it might go something like this. They've made some statement and you know where they're heading, but you just simply, you want to disarm them. So you, you say something along these lines. Look, I'm, I'm not sure I quite understand. In fact, I think you may have lost me a few minutes ago. Would you mind explaining that to me in layman's terms? And as I said, in essence, you're just using the basic formula of irreverence and innocence, followed by a polite persistence and intelligent questions. So you'll soon discover that that's all it takes to to regain and retain the initiative. Now, to help you achieve this, here are perhaps a few rules on how and when to speak. You see, you don't have to even attempt to answer a question if you're not prepared to. Or you can buy time. You simply say, look, I need to take that on notice. Let me come back to you. Never be afraid to answer a question with a question. You know, say someone asks a question, say, that's interesting. Why would you ask that? And also don't ask about something that you really don't want to talk about because if you introduce a topic and that runs a lot further and starts to get complicated, then you've got yourself in deep water. After you ask a question, the answer to which will commit the other side, just keep quiet and every so often you ought to try 
asking a question you already know the answer to because that's going to be interesting to see how they respond to that. Also, quite often restate your understanding of what the other party said. In other words, if they go on with something. So what you're really saying is such and such. Now, sometimes you do that to buy time because they're wanting to answer you on the spot. And it may be that in actual fact, what you heard them say wasn't quite what they intended and it's useful for you to have them clarify that and even if what they said was quite as you understood it, in hearing it back from you, they may see the unreasonableness of what they're asking and modify that instead. And also... Never be offensive or rude. There's no, there's no real value in that. It, it just antagonises them. I mean, it sometimes it's hard for you to keep you cool when 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 they're being aggressive. But there's no real value in you you doing that. And also, feel free to use conditional or hypothetical statements until you're certain of a point you're wishing to make. In other words, you might fly a kite and simply say, look, if I could and use a third party, get a partner to agree to that, would you be prepared to do such and such? So in other words, you in, fact, in effect get them to commit before you have to commit. And quite often you'll find that works to your advantage. Are there times when you might need to adopt an an aggressive stance? The fact is that, look, people are going to be hostile. You've got to understand that when you negotiate, there's two styles you can use. You can start, and I suggest you do, start by collaborating because you can always get tough later. If you begin negotiating with a confrontational stance, then you've got nowhere to go. As I said, you can always get tough later. And therefore, you need to choose your words carefully, especially during the first few moments of a negotiation. You see, people will quickly sense whether or not you intend to work towards a win-win outcome or you're just wanting to cream everything you can out of the deal. Therefore, what you should do whenever the other party poses something completely opposed to where you want to end up. First is never allow things to develop into an argument. And when you see someone taking a, a stance that's looking, proving to be difficult or they feel hemmed in, you use a simple technique which you've probably heard before called the feel, felt, find formula. And so if there's something arises, you simply... Say, listen, look, I understand just how you feel because many people have probably felt exactly the same way when they first hear a figure like that because you've offered a, a lower figure. But when you take a closer look at the entire proposal, you'll find there are several areas where we could work together and come up with a good result for both of us. So in other words, you display empathy first by agreeing with them then you gently turn things around 
to get the other party back on the path that you intend them to follow. And while you're covering the, the feel and the felt proportions of the formula, it should give you enough time to immediately come up with an appropriate find aspect and turn things around. So instead of reacting to any hostility as you may have been doing in the past, simply diffuse things using the simple but rather persuasive formula. And that way you can instantly recover your composure and remove any of the unwanted emotion so that you can get the negotiation back on track. Once again, your insights into negotiating are fascinating. And I loved your formula of irreverence and plus innocence to totally disarm any arrogant negotiators. Well, that doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, you need to have a simple way to deal with it seamlessly and without losing stride. Anyway, many thanks for what you covered today. And we'll also put that link up again if someone wants to build up their negotiating skills. Therefore, if you're listening to this through iTunes, just go to propertybriefings.com and look for the link beneath episode 85.